Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $126 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. ClearBridge tailors our strategies to meet three primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. And speaking of high active share, I'm excited to be here today with my colleague, Evan Bauman, Portfolio Manager of the Aggressive Growth and Multi-Cap Growth Strategies. Evan has managed the strategies with Richie Freeman for over 20 years. And this is the second year that Evan has kicked off our podcast schedule, and we're happy to have him back uh, once again, unfortunately. Uh, Duke is a favorite to win the national championship, and in the markets, we're discussing a change in leadership away from the fangs. And the topic of today's podcast is contrarian growth investing in an evolving market. We'd love to get your feedback about the topics we cover and how we can make our podcast better. You can contact us with questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing us at podcast at clearbridge.com. Evan, welcome back to the booth. It's always a pleasure to be here, Jeffrey. You're our first three-time guest making an appearance on the podcast series. Hopefully this is the first time Duke uh, follows through on the (laughs) hope and the promise of the youngsters, yeah. Well, I think uh, last time I had you in here, we had uh, you and Margaret, two uh, Duke grads, were ganging up on me. I'm a Kentucky fan, for those of you that haven't listened to the series. It's been a demoralizing year for me as a, a Cats fan, especially after that first loss that we had against Duke. I think it was, what, 30 points? It was 20-something, but who's counting? <laughs> but it's uh, it's January, remember. We we start counting victories in March, so we'll see how, uh, how it plays out. Well, unfortunately, in two months, I'm going to have to see that 24-7 loop of Leitner hitting that shot in the NCAAs against Kentucky, which I'm not really looking forward to. But in speaking about leadership, right, obviously the FANG stocks have been market leaders since we bottomed in 2009, which has really been led by a momentum-driven environment. So we've seen a pullback in a lot of those names in the fourth quarter. Is this the start of a turning point? I know you've been talking a lot about this over the last couple of years. Yeah, I think I think things changed a lot in the fourth quarter, you know, obviously, and, and you can give the macro perspective on it. But the market itself, I think, had a, had a major shift in in a lot of areas. One was volatility, right? Where the VIX came into the uh, early part of the fourth quarter around 10 or 11, I guess 11 and change, and spiked as high as 35 um, or a little over 35, which is an extreme level and generally indicative of a market low. So there was a return of volatility. I think clearly what had been somewhat um, best described as complacency in terms of we'll call it mega cap technology names. And the market in general clearly was replaced by enormous levels of skepticism, panic, fear, um, as measured by a lot of indicators. You had extreme levels across sentiment indicators uh, during that fourth quarter drawdown, which was only about 20% peak to trough, but clearly read as a the first, I'd say, major correction, at least in terms of magnitude that we've had really in a number of years. Remember, as you said, we're 10 years into this bull market and and clearly the market, which really for the last three years, even though it's been uh, for a while, really the last three years was becoming more narrow in terms of leadership. And, and again, I think what was ironic about it was it was very much driven by IT. And in this case, it was the mega cap IT stocks. You know, 20 years ago, it was, it was a different kind of market that was driven clearly by overvaluation, a true valuation bubble. The dot-com bubble. Exactly. Back in the, in the 90, late 90s. Th- this was similar in that it was, again, it was very much 
driven by IT. And, and you had five or six stocks making up more than a quarter of the growth indices. For the most part, all of those names had done quite well. And, and you clearly, I think, right as the market uh, reversed late third quarter, early fourth quarter, you had a lot of fear in the market. You didn't have overvaluation. You had a, actually a lot of a healthy dose of skepticism for certain sectors that I'm sure we'll talk about, like media and healthcare. But you had obviously had rising um, complacency or, or, or rising optimism for companies that were at seven, eight, nine hundred uh, billion dollar market caps that were all competing for the same piece of the pie. So the last three months, I think the last three plus months, things have changed dramatically. You've had a sell-off in a lot of those big cap names. Um, Apple, for example, which has retreated almost, I think, almost 40 percent uh, off of a $1.1 trillion market cap level. And now what you've seen emerging from that sell-off is some different looking leadership. This year, I think, has been very different just in two to three weeks. I think you've seen sectors like energy start to emerge. You've seen deal activity in other areas that are starting to lead to a re-rating of valuations in some of these laggard parts of the market. So, yeah, generally, when you get this type of violent, meaningful sell-off in the market, particularly if, as we all, I think, believe, it's a correction in an ongoing bull market, actually a pretty healthy and not completely unexpected one, the subsequent rally or the subsequent years actually look very different in terms of leadership. And I think that's what we're starting to get uh, in the early uh, weeks of this year. And to your point, this is a bull market correction on our opinion. The, the Clearbridge recession risk dashboard still flashing a solidly green signal, which means doesn't mean we're not going to have pockets of volatility, some you know, some bumps along the way. But the market should look through this because the economy is still on a healthy foundation. But just coming back to this idea about the fangs, right? They've gone through their super growth phase. Now they're spending money in order to keep their growth rates up. And maybe I'll just look at Amazon really quickly. They're opening 3,000 stores, the Amazon, Amazon Go stores, by 2021. It's going to cost them about $3 billion. And usually when that super growth phase is over, you start spending a lot of money. Um, investors tend to hurt. You know, They sell those stocks because maybe the valuations aren't necessarily warranted at that point. I mean, you talked about Apple. Apple had a huge miss. People here in the U.S. aren't upgrading their iPhones. Um, they're changing their batteries. Um, you know, a lot of uh, competitors in China and the emerging markets, the handsets are three to $400 cheaper. So, you know, if you think that the competitive advantage that these FANG stocks have had is, is starting to erode, they're going to be spending a lot of money in order to keep up those growth rates. Um, as, you, as you mentioned, Evan, uh, it does seem like a shift of market leadership could be at hand. I think one of the biggest misperceptions in the marketplace is that FANG is one entity. You know, I think, yes, they all basically traded together on the upside in 2017. I think on average, the FANG names were up about 40% across the board, and they all seemed to trade together. And we can debate maybe why that is the case. And I think a lot of it had to do with money flow into passive products. Passive, yeah. You had, I mean, as we as a growth manager... We are business owners. We own companies regardless of benchmark positioning and our active share or how different we are from the bench is extraordinarily high. But if you're a traditional growth manager, a traditional large cap growth manager, and you haven't owned those names, it's been an extraordinarily difficult market to outperform. And so I think what's ironic is I, I made the reference to the previous dot-com bubble. This was never a bubble. I mean, this was certainly not a valuation bubble. You could argue some of those names, like a Netflix, are clearly on the higher end 
of valuation metrics like price to cash flow and, and, and price to free cash flow where there isn't any free cash right now. But other companies like Apple and Facebook have true valuation support and they have rock solid balance sheets. I think my sense was you had so much passive ownership of these names, both in terms of ETFs and active managers feeling pressure in order, frankly, to keep their jobs, to have to buy these stocks. And I think one of the reasons that I was very sort of negative on the big stuff at the beginning of the fourth quarter was you're hearing more and more anecdotes about growth managers feeling as though they had to at least neutralize these positions in their portfolios. And we look at everything from a bottom-up perspective. We look at businesses. You're looking at sectors and, and subsectors or industries like biotechnology companies where you have true exclusivity and, exclusivity and IP, very little competition in some of these nascent markets, and you're paying 10 times earnings for these companies. Which is almost unheard of, especially... It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's the first time in history, certainly, yeah. Whereas everybody was falling in love again with big tech. And when you talk and you say, we don't own Apple, and, and clients argue with you, it's it's again it had it it had a lot of the um, qualities to me of, of a market that was going to assuming new money is not coming into the market in order to bid up some of these undervalued underowned areas you have to take money from somewhere and the definition of a crowded part of the market is that when money starts to rotate even if the market caps are large that can be pretty violent it could be pretty volatile and I think that's played a role in in what we've seen. So stocks obviously are, are up fairly uh, nicely here in 2019. We're seeing a, a nice rebound. Obviously, Powell's comments a couple of weeks ago soothed market fears that the Fed is going to do a policy mistake and, and over-tighten. I'd make the argument that um, given the fact that the yield curve is only 30 basis points steep, the last thing that they want to do is raise rates and potentially inadvertently uh, invert the curve with the 10-year selling off. So Fed policy is not going to get in the way of the markets. Um, and also, you had a really healthy jobs number a couple weeks ago, which takes that recession fear off the table as well. So coming back to the, the fact that we have seen a, a nice rebound here in 2019, besides just the, the fact that the Fed's paused and that you've seen a nice jobs report, what else is encouraging to you about what's changing in this environment? You know, the return of volatility is an active manager's friend, is it not? It can be. I mean, we own businesses for decades. Some of the companies that we own today, we've owned since they were much earlier in their life cycle, since they were small and mid companies. And today, in some cases like Biogen and Comcast and some of the other names that we own in, in the uh, healthcare and media space, they're actually larger, even um, borderline mega cap names. So the idea of this strategy is to take advantage of volatility, to know what we own. We tend to do a lot of research before we buy. But when the market goes straight up with no liquidity and no volatility, it can be difficult at times when you have these pockets of volatility, and I think we'll probably get back to the market in general, but by no means would we say the market can't retest uh, the lows that we saw in December, nor would it be unhealthy for the market to have what normally happens, which is a retest, causes, again, a, a healthy dose of panic and fear because of the fact that, as you said, we're about 10% off the lows. A lot of investors feel like the coast is clear. And then when you retest, as it has almost every time you've had one of these cascading waterfall sell-offs, it can drive you know negativity up significantly from the retail investor and, and from uh, some of the sentiment indicators. So I think we just pick our spots. We're very valuation sensitive. We have a portfolio that, even though the market is still only 10 12% off of all-time highs, is close to its historical lows on a valuation basis, both absolute and apropos to the index uh, versus the market itself. So 
Yeah, I don't think volatility in and of itself is a bad thing. As you said, you take a step back and you look at the threats to growth that were present in the third quarter last year, and a lot of those have actually retreated. You know, the Fed was clearly a threat to the market, and and many, uh, including yourself, were talking at least about two potential hikes in interest rates. The 10-year was at multi-year highs. The dollar was rising. You had, again, low volatility and rising complacency, and you had... Again, what's interesting about this market, if you want to say broadly speaking, you never had a bubble in valuations. Even at the peak, you were at 20-ish times earnings on the S&P. And now- Which is close to the long-term averages. Exactly. And that's 10 years into a bull market. Now with this correction, as growth actually probably has the potential now to surprise, and you could tell me your thoughts on the upside, valuations have compressed down to crazy levels. I mean, the, the, the strategy itself- trades around 13 times earnings. And again, reminding you, the name of the fund is aggressive growth <laughs> and the name of the product is multi-cap growth on the SMA side. So there's some some pretty attractive opportunities in the market. I think, like I said, if 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 you think of the first couple of weeks or first first month as, you know, proxy for the rest of the, for the year, the next couple of years, it's just going to be different looking sectors that lead us out of this. Well, to put it in perspective, if you looked at the PE contraction that we saw last year over the past 40 years, it was the third biggest PE contraction that we've had uh, in four decades. The other years that were close to it, 2000, 2002, and 2008. So a PE levels coming in three and a half turns um, makes uh, it a lot more attractive to be a long-term investor. And you also mentioned something about sentiment. You, you, you use a number of different gauges to look at sentiment. One that I like to look at is the AAII bull bear ratio. Uh, traditionally, when it gets below one, it represents a pretty good contrarian buying opportunity. And we did get below one at the end of last year, as soon as the sell-off was really taking effect. Um, I, I do agree, though. I think we probably are going to be due for a retest here sometime over the next month or two as earnings for the fourth, fourth quarter come in, uh, expectations going forward for 2019 come in a little bit more. But uh, again, volatility is a is an asset to an active manager, especially ones that are, are long term business owners like yourself. Now, you, you'd mentioned healthcare um, as an area that you you have a pretty hefty overweight to. It's been depressed for some time. Last year uh, may be the year where healthcare is starting to get a little bit more fanfare. It was the one of only two sectors that was positive in, in total returns in 2018. And you've seen some positive news around some mergers, uh, specifically Celgene and, and Bristol Myers. So. What are your views in this space? Is this kind of the beginning of a period of outperformance? Yeah, you said depressed, and I was just thinking uh, we're depressed when when our <laughs> when our stocks underperform. But yeah, I think there's there's actually some even again early in the year, but I think there's been numerous positive signs um, coming out of the the healthcare industry. Now, again, we've owned the sector since you can go back to the really the, the, the inception of the strategy back in 1983, and so our history with the group goes back quite a, quite a long time. I think, you know, I referenced earlier how we've never seen, one, we've never seen companies, the bigger companies, this profitable. Uh, two, you've never seen valuations of the profitable companies trading like utilities. I mean, trading at 10 or 12 times earnings. In some cases, uh, even less than that. We have, you know, we have companies like Allergan that are trading at less than 10 times uh, base business earnings. Companies like Biogen generating what'll be north of $28 per share in earnings uh, over the next 12 months and trading it again, less less than a market multiple. So valuations are good. I think what what doesn't get discussed enough, and you know, it's in this environment of, you know, concerns, right, over drug prices and reimbursements and all sorts of political issues. 
but you have so much innovation occurring right now in the industry that you've never had before that last year in 2018, you had a record number, not only of approvals of uh, NDAs, new drug applications, but you had a record number of first cycle approvals of these NDAs. So you have an FDA right now that I think is really trying to separate the industry into companies that are selling Me Too products where they're generic options and have the opportunity to bring down costs through competition and more generics. And then you have the companies that we own, which are actually finding these treatments and cures for unmet need, you know, whether it's neurology, uh, Alzheimer's, ALS, Parkinson's disease. You have rare disease where you're seeing new methods of treating rare disease or orphan diseases, which are relatively smaller patient populations, but where there's nothing on the market, nothing approved right now for for a lot of these these end markets that are, um, you know, keeping people in hospitals just for for uh, standard of care. And now you're finding um, new mechanisms like gene therapy, which are keeping people uh, safe and, and healthy and actually keeping them out of the long-term care um, centers. So I think there's a lot of really good things happening. You had a record number of approvals. You had actually record capital markets activity last year. The fact that you're getting deals now, both the smaller names, um, Lilly made a, a purchase of an oncology company for about $8 billion dollars relatively expensive price for an early stage asset, but it helps to bolster the pipelines of the pharma companies. And then the big one that you referenced, Bristol buying or making a bid for Celgene, I think what, is- that, that 74 billion? 70, yeah, it's, it's a big one. <laughs> and it, it's more indicative of a Roche for Genentech kind of deal where the company is transforming itself by buying the innovator and spending cash along with stock and, and actually placing a uh, CVR, a contingent value right unit, on some of the earlier stage assets that Celgene's own owns, saying essentially their current business model is is not no longer effective, and they need to continue to buy the innovators. And I think that is a very meaningful deal for the sector. I think you can see similar deals from some of the other big pharma's that need to acquire growth, need to acquire both approved uh, product as well as pipelines of drugs, and that's. I think the the kind of deal we haven't seen in a while and, and uh, could be very favorable for the group. And let's not forget, right, a lot of this money coming back home from overseas is repatriated assets, healthcare and information technology by far and away have the lion's share of that $2.6 trillion in unremitted foreign earnings. So bringing that money back home with valuations being as cheap as they are, that's uh, makes sense from a corporate management perspective to buy your competitors and strip out those costs and make your, your business a little bit more comprehensive. Yeah, and and I think it's it's again it's it's funny how the market reacted to the announcement of the deal, which was Bristol stock dropped fifteen percent, Celgene still tra- trades well below the the, st- the uh, deal price. So there's a lot of skepticism uh, around everything, the strategy and and um, how the deal will will be perceived in the longer run. You know, and it's a little bit like media a few years ago, where you had a lot of depressed assets. Companies like Fox and Sky and some of the assets that ultimately received multiple bids saw their share price go for for north of 100% higher than they were trading at before the deal activity started. So it's, again, I think there's still a lot of negative sentiment in the group. I think there's a lot of very favorable things happening both at FDA and at the company and, and the uh, pipeline level for a lot of these names. But it's going to take, I think, a couple more deals until investors realize that these are not one-offs, that maybe Celgene receives another bid from somebody else, that maybe Bristol receives a bid. There could be multiple moving parts, even in that particular deal. 
But I think what you need to see is the market starting to reflect that assets ultimately are dramatically underpriced and they're going to get monetized either over time in the stock market or by these third-party transactions that start to re-rate the group higher. And that, I think, is setting up the stage. It's a very under-owned area. I think it's setting up a, a stage for a much, much better year for those those companies. And I'd make the argument that drug price regulation is one of the key reasons why valuations are still relatively attractive. Um, you know, if you think about the companies that you owned, they have pipelines or they're trying to address unmet needs, right? So even if you do come to market with your particular product, if there's no competition, you're going to have a lot more flexibility and pricing power than somebody who has something that's a little bit more commoditized. Well, and if you want to foster innovation, you need to price the innovators. I mean, that's, that's the key is these are, these are long cycle clinical activities. They could take up to 10 years to bring a drug to market to prove safety and efficacy. I think what the reality is, um, you know, FDA Commissioner Gottlieb is actually very much focused on promotion of innovation, allowing these companies, if they prove a drug is safe and, and, and efficacious, get it to market sooner. Get it to market sooner in disease progression before patients had Alzheimer's for 12 or 15 years and they're so impaired that there's no reversing ultimately the symptoms in the course of the disease you know, try to actually figure out through genetic testing who might be at risk of getting some of these diseases. A lot of the rare diseases are uh, inherited. So figuring out who might be at risk, finding drugs that work and allowing companies to price that way. I think that's, I think those are all very favorable long-term trends that right now the market is, is not looking at. I think the market is so fixated on the headlines that come out of DC. They're so focused on every political announcement around drug pricing. But when you really read the fine print, I think that impacts the pharma as much more than the biotechs. And it's part of the reason why I think they're going to be, uh, you know, much very acquisitive of those biotech companies. Well, biopharma is trading at a multiple that's less than the market. And there's only been two times over the past uh, 30 years where that's been the case. When drug price controls were on the table with Hillary Care back in the early 1990s, when Obamacare was originally brought to the forefront in 2009 and 2010. And as you mentioned, I think as the clouds start to dissipate, um, you could see a, a nice re-rating higher of the, of the sector. Let's move over to another area that you have a, a pretty nice overweight to compared to the underlying benchmark, with his, which is energy. Uh, crude has uh, rebounded fairly smartly here in 2019. I think we're officially in a bull market territory for a barrel of oil. Um, but what do you think it's going to start to, what's going to take in order for energy stocks to to take that leap forward without performance as well? And, and mind you, energy is the best performing sector so far year to date, up roughly 7% at this given time. Yeah, quietly. I mean, it doesn't feel that way. And it also feels like we're the, the last manager, long only, or, or hedge fund <laughs> that owns them. I mean, I, I you know, I think there's there's an idea of trying to find un, unloved sectors, particularly a more, or more cyclical area like energy than, you know, some of the other areas that we own, like healthcare and media. We, th there's an understanding that these companies are price takers. They don't set price. They ultimately have to react. The markets themselves have to react to, to volatility in, in commodity prices. I think what you had in the fourth quarter was a combination of fundamentals and then just market-related activity that really dramatically, in my view, um, exaggerated the move in everything. I mean, and then I, tax law selling, right? 
it's all of that. I think you had a number of desks and hedge funds that that actually ceased to exist after the volatility in natural gas prices in mid December. In excuse me, in mid November. And then the, all the volatility around oil prices in late December. I mean, I think there's clearly an oversupply situation in the global markets that needs to be corrected. Generally, price will cure price. These are self-correcting markets. And we've already seen a reflex reaction from OPEC and, and some of the U.S. producers speaking more cautiously about raising production aggressively in the low 50s as opposed to where prices were three months ago in the 70s. But I also think, as you said, you had an enormous amount of end-of-year um, selling. Uh, I think there was de-risking after the fact. You had a tremendous amount of tax law selling across the uh, commodity complex, and that obviously impacts energy significantly. And I think what you did is you set up again another interesting dynamic where all of the fears that we had, similar to the market fears, all the fears about energy four or five months ago, which were record amounts of production coming out of everywhere in the world. You had potential for slowing global demand. And, and obviously, I think fears there, and and you can give your take, I think fears there are probably more perception than reality as it pertains to oil prices. Um, but you had a lot of fears of, of rising CapEx, rising production. Um, you know, And then that was a point where companies were actually raising CapEx 10 or 15%. All of those fears have been reversed. It, it probably results in, in short order. In very short order, exactly. It probably results in an industry that finds supply-demand balance much quicker because of the quick reaction of, of both countries and companies this time around at a time when balance sheets, for the most part, are in much better shape than they were three years ago. You know, a lot of the service companies are trading at big discounts um, on an equity basis to where they were in early 2016, and that was a, a that was coming off of an oil price crash and a lot of companies had significantly uh, less capital and more leverage at the time. Now, a lot of the EMPs, a lot of the independents are actually generating free cash flow, albeit at a lower price deck environment because of good cost management. You have, and this is going to sound similar to healthcare in that you have the potential for consolidation with, with the majors now in a much better financial position and a ton of private equity money out there. We've already seen a couple of smaller bids and and both for assets and for smaller companies. But that can be a trend. I mean, there's there's no more, I'd say, disliked or or underowned area right now than energy in terms of the equity markets. And you could probably argue the debt markets as well. And generally generally again there it takes one or two actions, whether it's through an independent investor, you know, like we've seen over time in the media space, sometimes someone will walk in, pay a big premium and take a big investment in an area, but these are good cash flowing assets. And at some point there'll be a clearing price where you're going to see, I think, strategic buying. I think you have right now, I think you have valuations looking very good and and the markets themselves from a commodity price tech perspective have probably seen the worst because I think a lot of that move was exaggerated by uh, the end of the year stuff. And that would echo exactly what our energy analyst recently uh, came out with. He just got back from a large industry conference and he said, uh, this may be the most bearish uh, that he's seen anybody at the uh, energy conference in his entire career. Um, you know, that's what happens when everybody gets washed out twice over the course of three years. But uh, ultimately, I think a lot of the fears are overblown. You've seen demand hold up relatively well. 
A big reason why you've seen the price of a barrel of oil go down is because Iranian sanctions didn't go into effect. And ironically, um, this uh, cash discipline uh, that everybody got back in 2016 may sow the seeds for the next real big boom in energy prices, right? CapEx is down 40% from where we were back in 2015 and 16. A lot of companies aren't investing for the future. They're just relying on shale production. And I think if the global economy doesn't fall apart, which is what our base case expectation is, um, you could see a potential issue in the Middle East where some of that supply comes offline. Um, with the IMO regulations that are coming forward in 2020, which is the International Maritime Organization, they're changing the rules on what type of fuel um, large tankers can use. Uh, they used to use the bottom of the barrel, if you will, the, the high sulfuric acid uh, is fuels. And uh, one of the tankers out there put as much emissions into the ozone layer as 380 million cars. So they changed it from that to something akin to diesel. Um, so you're going to have to bring on another million barrels of supply over the course of the next year and a half. I think all of these come together and end up, you know, seeing a bull market resume here in the energy markets, uh, with the price of barrel going higher. But of course, some of these beaten up areas, these beaten up companies in the energy patch are, are going to re-rate higher. Yeah. And it, 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 you hit a good point there also for the service names or the equipment companies. You've had a four-year depression in spending. And at some point, you're going to hit the point where inventories are too low. And you're going to have, I think, a major refresh cycle in new technologies, new equipment, better um, better technologies embedded in the equipment, smarter rigs, for example. And I think that is another, if you want to talk about the levered play to the upside, it's some of these, these oil service companies where the balance sheets aren't as strong as the EMPs. They have more leverage. They're not right now breaking even in terms of operating uh, net income, but you also have enormous leverage to the upside if and when the cycle turns. So that's, you know, that's part of the portfolio is some of those more technology enhancing service names that again, I think you have, you you have probably higher risk because of the leverage, but also the reward profile is pretty significant at these levels. You're talking about risk and rewards. Like let's, let's maybe take a step up. I know we talked about a couple of companies that you have in the portfolio, but what are some of the, the key metrics uh, that you look for in a company that you're looking to hold over the course of 10 to, to 20 years? Uh, and, you know, why are these different characteristics important? Sure. So I mentioned innovation in healthcare. I think innovation and, and technology enhancing companies is core to the philosophy. Owning, owning businesses for decades you want disruptors. You want companies that are changing the way that medicine is prescribed or the way that you, you know, the way that technology is is uh, enhancing your lives. But what's interesting about our philosophy as being such long-term shareholders, probably the most important thing is exclusivity or intellectual property, owning the asset the, and having- The moat. The okay. moat, and, but having a real moat, having either a monopoly or a duopoly in a business where if somebody's going to compete with you, you're going to get paid, you know, license and royalty type stream. But ultimately, I think when you talk about technology, and we had some earlier comments about the sort of love affair with big tech again, and that's, you know, I think investors, I, I, I've said a number of times, when tech's going up, everybody loves them. But you forget that inherently IT companies are relatively deflationary, and they're in very, very competitive markets. Most of the fangs compete against each other for for basically consumer market share. And we've seen so many examples of where a, a um, you know a device maker or a you know TV company had a big market share, missed a product cycle and lost it, and and had a big market cap and went went down significantly. Whereas what we're trying to find is companies, if it's a if it's a programming asset in the media space, ultimately those those programs are their IP. They can distribute it distribute them 
over different sources, over different means, over over you know an over the top type service or over traditional cable or satellite, but they're going to get paid because they ultimately own the asset and they own the IP there. Same with even the energy names that we discussed. We want to own great quality assets where the companies can return cash to us as shareholders. And longer term, I think the the key for all of the names that we buy is the ability to generate meaningful amounts of free cash flow. We don't buy concepts. We try not to overpay for companies that are that are either cyclical or, or obviously are um, you know in industries that where uh, the valuations to us don't seem appropriate. But at the end of the day, it's about IP. It's about sustainability or durability of growth. The ability to grow for years, not just for a cycle or two. And then, you know, making sure that we don't overpay and get caught up in fads. What we're trying to find is trends that are sustaining and and, and we own companies that ultimately can get monetized by the market or by other, other companies. And we don't look, we don't seek out. I know we spoke quite a bit about consolidation in industries. And I think it's natural that you're going to see more in certain areas, but you can never buy something and hope it gets bought out. What you want to buy is a great business, great IP great management that ultimately is accreting value to us as shareholders over decades. And then if we're right, then other businesses on their enterprises should see similar value or private equity or or strategic buyers should see that same value. So, I mean, some those are some of the things that we look for as, as long-term owners. Now, you, you mentioned uh, companies that are attractive. Um, might we see uh, a name or two or addition to the, the the portfolio this year? And and if you could look into your magic eight ball and tell me what are your expectations for the upcoming year? So I would think so, simply because we haven't bought a lot of new names in the last couple of years. I mean, we'd rather buy companies that we know that we've done multi years of research on. I think I, I you know mentioned earlier, management teams are very important to us. I think we don't screen. We'd rather really get to know a business inside and out, get to know a management team and how they think about accreting value to us as shareholders over the long term, what they're going to do with the balance sheet during periods of stress, what they're going to do with their free cash flow and how they're going to return cash to shareholders. So yeah, I mean, just by by nature of the fact that we haven't bought a lot recently in terms of new names and the fact the market has obviously gotten more downside volatile. So it's created opportunities for us to buy into some of these names both that we own already, but some of the um, some of the prospective holdings that have now come down to levels that are significantly more attractive than they were three or four months ago. Yeah, I mean, there's there's going to be more activity on the new stuff. When you own a portfolio of cheap companies, I mean, you know, one of the things my you know Richie's always said to me is, if you know you like the companies that you own and they're really cheap, do you buy something new that you hope to like, and and do you sell something you know you like to do it? So where we have some cash, there'll be some new additions. There'll be some you know, there'll be some dollar cost averaging into some of the other names that we own. But yeah, just by by the nature of uh, the market getting more attractive to us, you know, there'll be some new stuff. So I'm taking that as 2019 will be a positive year for the the market to expectations at this point. There's a higher likelihood today, a significantly higher likelihood than there was three months ago. And you know, the off presidential election year cycle, which tells you generally the third year is a pretty good one. And and you usually get the buying opportunity in the second year. So I think that's uh, I think that's probably when we look back. You won't know until you, you know you're, you're a couple of years from now and you look back. But I think this is going to set up like another classic second year off presidential election year uh, 
correction that led to a much better market the next couple of years. I just think it's going to be different looking leaders in the market. Yeah, since 1950, uh, if you look at the presidential cycle, you have never had a recession in year three of a presidential cycle, which happens to be year three in 2019 is year three of Trump's presidency. If you look at year three returns, if you look at first and second term presidents, your average return this year is 16% in first term only, which is what we happen to be in. That number jumps up to 19%, which both of which are are well above the long-term averages. So with the market essentially giving us a gift with the volatility in the fourth quarter, recession risk not on the horizon, uh, I'm going to agree with you, Evan. I do think that there's a a pretty good chance that the markets are going to re-rate higher this year. Uh, but Evan, thanks again. That's all the time that we have in the booth here. Um, I appreciate you being the first three-peat uh, person cheers. in the booth. Yeah, cheers. My pleasure. And then hopefully next time that we sit down uh, early 2020, at least one of us, I think it's more likely going to be you than me, we'll have a national championship uh, to to gloat about to the other one that's uh, that's talking about this. And, and hopefully it's a one-peat for Duke for these <laughs> kids because I don't think you're going to get them there three years. So, uh, well, you we'll, know, we'll take one in a row. The way that Coach K has recruited, you'll just have a whole new uh, host of uh, top five prospects. Right. Yep. <laughs> well, thanks, everybody, for, for joining us here today. And I uh, hope everybody has a great rest of your January. And uh, we hope to have you back on the next ClearBridge podcast. Take care. Just as a reminder, we welcome any questions, comments, and suggestions, which you can email to us at podcast at clearbridge.com. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of January 14th, 2019, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole, and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics reference have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.